This is the Do Good Better podcast with Trina Isaacson. Welcome. Uh, This is my final dispatch from Myanmar or Burma. I actually recorded this conversation uh, quite a few months ago, but I'm just finally getting it up now. I look forward to sharing the next podcast episode from when I'm back in Canada. This conversation I'm really excited to share with you today. I'm chatting with Jimmy Briggs. He's a a speaker, author, former executive director. Uh, We had a really great chat about self-care. Jimmy's had some pretty phenomenal life experiences that have informed his opinions on the topic. Jimmy Briggs is an award-winning journalist contributing to stories on violence, conflict, Gulf War syndrome, civil war, genocide, gender, and youth to Life Magazine and Am News, among others. He's the author of Innocence Lost, When Child Soldiers Go to War. Uh, As a writer, he's been to Rwanda, Congo, Sri Lanka, Colombia, and many more countries. He's the founder of the Man Up Campaign, which launched at the 2010 FIFA World Cup to educate and empower youth to take action on gender violence in their countries and communities. He's a previous nonprofit executive director and a prolific speaker on anti-violence work and on self-care. He's currently completing a book on manhood called Blood Work, a meditation on manhood through a lens of illness. Some of our chat focuses on that, on a series of dramatic illnesses that Jimmy suffered. And I got the timeline a bit wrong, so please forgive me. And uh, Jimmy corrects me a bit. He's got the his own life timeline that he shares. Anyways, here we go. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jimmy. I'm really happy to have you here. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Trina, for, for your interest in talking with me. Well, uh, one of your passions is self-care, and I want to share with listeners uh, a bit of a story about where, from my understanding, you came to um, ha- being passionate about self-care. So at the age of 35, soon after founding Man Up, you walked into an emergency room not feeling well, which was maybe a it's a, it's a bit of an understatement. Um, and it turned out you were having an, a cardiac emergency with a systolic blood pressure of 291 above the pressure where strokes happen. And the medical staff were surprised you were able to function at all, talk, walk, and suggested that you may have died that night without coming into the hospital. And it led to heart damage and kidney damage, eventually requiring you to have a kidney transplant. Um, you previously wrote that I died that night, or at least the old me did. What new you was born? I said I wrote the old me died because I, at that time, you know, I'm 46 now, so that was 11 years ago. At the age of 35, when that happened, I felt like I was, and I was, I think, I believe looking back, but I was committed to changing my life, my lifestyle, and, you know, the pressure I put on myself and by consequence my family um, by working too hard, by being too intense, by pushing myself to do too much too fast. And, and I think for a time I did, for a short period of time after that, you know, 35 that happening, I did. Um, and then, you know, five years later, um, I had my second heart attack. And that was the heart attack that, you know, not only put me in the hospital and put me in intensive care and, you know, had people thinking that I wasn't going to make it, but that was also the heart attack that, that really gave me the wake-up call that I needed, you know, unfortunately, because as I was recovering in the hospital, I learned that my kidneys had failed and they were not going to restart. You know, kidney failure, renal shutdown is a common common occurrence when someone has a cardiac incident. But usually, as the person recovers from the heart attack or whatever it is, the kidneys resume function, and mine did not. My kidneys had failed, and they were gonna they were not gonna start back. And so, it's been four years on dialysis, waiting for a transplant. Um, and then coming out of that, you know, I just felt like <laughs> I I can't go back. I can't go, I can't go back to that. I can't. Um, 
a canvas work. I just can't, you know, I can't do it. So what did you, you, you mentioned not going back. So what did you move towards? Well, I mean, I, you know, after, after being on Dallas, I tried to work and realized I wasn't going to be able to work at full capacity. So I worked, but I worked just enough to, to you know, take care of myself and my family. And then once I had the transplant, which happened in August of last year, um, you know, I said, I need to go back to work. I need, you know, I've got this new lease on life. I have a new, new kidney. I'm, that's the first time I have a shot at, at long-term, sustainable, positive health. And, um, so, I, you know, I, I literally I changed my life in a way that I should have changed it when I first had the first heart attack. And that, you know, I started going to the gym. I started eating healthier. I started making sure I got X number of hours of sleep per night and, and, um, and didn't, you know, didn't, you know, overwork myself, didn't work late, didn't work on weekends. And for the most part, I've been holding to that, you know, and that's something I'm proud of because I still, in my new position, I still work hard, I still push hard. But um, at the end of the day, I make sure I go home, I don't pull all nighters, I get enough sleep. And it's it's really made a difference just in my personality, my output, everything. So it's interesting, your your focus on self-care is in some ways the opposite of a lot of the focus of your work, which has been on violence that others are exposed to and you know exposing that violence and, and fighting against it. Do you see any connection between that focus of your of your life on fighting against violence and the, the importance you place on self-care? Well, I see, I see a direct correlation, Trina, because, you know, even though I, as a journalist now, as a you know, nonprofit director and advocate, you know, I've been focused on violence. I've been focused on violence and trauma among young people particularly. And I think I think the issue of self-care, um, you know, really does correlate because, you know, often young people who I meet when I go to schools and when I go to conferences and, you know, when I go to these different communities, you know, I talk to them and more than talking to them, I just listen. And, you know, they're not often given opportunities or pathways towards actually addressing their trauma or their pain openly. Um, and then when they do, more than not, it's usually in a negative fashion or even a harmful or self-harmful fashion. And so I think, I think self-care is something that, you know, directly ties to violence. I think I think it ties to the workplace. Um, lately, I've been talking a lot with um, the particular, particular program that we have violence is a part of called Lucas Quest. I've been talking a lot, Trina, with um, executives from Barclays Bank, from Ernst & Young, from McGraw-Hill. And these are people who are, you know, high-level corporate environments, um, even McGraw-Hill, whose work is tied to the development of young people, even their contact with young people in certain communities or schools, is not substantive. They weren't totally aware of what was going on until the public schools that we serve. And you know, what I said to them was that if, you know, think about your workplace or your family as an ecosystem. What happens when an organism in an ecosystem is crippled or debilitated or is not functioning properly? It affects the entire ecosystem. And professionally, especially in the nonprofit space, Trina, especially in the nonprofit space, um, it's critical that individual care is tied to ecological or um, organizational care because you know if someone's not performing at their best or feeling at their best emotionally physically whatever combination of the above then it's going to impact your company it's going to impact productivity and efficiency of your company if if you're not creating safe spaces for people to talk about whatever they need to talk about in the process so then you would say that the imperative for self-care is not just the responsibility of, of individuals, but it's also responsibility of the organization and its leadership in the culture of an organization. 
Absolutely. It has to, it has to be Trina. It has to be. So then what does uh, a culture of self-care look like in an effective nonprofit organization? I think one thing is safe space. And by safe space, I mean, it's interesting, Trina, when I talk about safe space looking back, because as a journalist, as a journalist, you know, I would say there wasn't safe space. Because if you were in an assignment in conflict or crisis or whatever, violent crime, dealt with illness, whatever it may have been, if you, you know, went back to your producer or your editor and said, this impacted me, and I'm not sure how I feel about it, I'm not sure what to do, there was always the fear, real or not, there's always a fear that you might not get another assignment or you may not get the plum assignments because, you know, if, if this is affecting you in this way, you know, in the back of your mind, you're always asking yourself, well, they're going to, they being the editor or the producer, whoever is going to say, so-and-so can't handle a story like that. Or so, no, this person has to be coddled or, or protected from certain stories, you know, to be sure. I think there are consequences, you know, as a journalist, I think, and as a person, I tended to go to the most extreme possibility. So, you know, not getting work, being fired, not getting the summons I wanted was was for me, my fear. And, I th- and talking with a lot of other journalists and, and people in the nonprofit social change space, I mean, it's, it's a common fear. It's, it's a fear that transcends different communities. So safe space is one. But also, I think um, an intentional framing and education for your staff, for your colleagues, employees about trauma, about um, mental health and you know, a lot of larger corporations, they offer their employees memberships to gyms to do a workout, physically workout. I know it's it's common, I'm not sure about the U.S., but in Canada, some larger nonprofit organizations might offer what's called Employee Assistance Program, EAP, where people can confidentially speak to and make appointments with counselors or psychologists on issues that might be affecting them personally or the workplace. I mean, whether it's personal or work-based, it will all impact their effectiveness at work. And so that's a very maybe clinical approach, but you think that there are other ways to approach mental health and self-care beyond gyms and counselors. Right. I think, I think that, that those ways are great. Trina, but I also think there's peer mentorship, peer support. Um, you know, I think, you know, there can be organizational dialogue around certain issues um, but I think, you know, that people have to feel ultimately trained that, you know, and this happens through actions, frankly, that there's a culture, but there's also a commitment formally, or if not that informally from the top down that says, you know, we, that mental health is important to us, that burnout is important to us, that trauma and stress are important to us. And this is what we're doing is what we're offering our employees. And so when it comes to the leaders within a nonprofit organization, um, what are some tangible actions or conversations that they might hold in order to create safe space and to increase that culture of support? I think I would say one is um, availability for conversation and dialogue. I think a lot of executive directors and program directors, you know, even at the smaller, the mid-sized nonprofits such as, such as ours, uh, but especially the higher ones, you know, there's, there's this sense that you have to withhold something from that person. I think one of the critical things in answer to your question is really um, allowing people through exercises or through dialogue. But I think people have to understand as well, Trina, that they can take off the mask. When I say take off the mask, I mean there has to be a space where people can remove the mask, which hides their their true emotions, their true perspectives, their aspirations. And, you know, when I talk to people from the corporations, one exercise I do is, is we do a mask exercise where I ask them to write 
how the world sees them and how um, they're perceived in the outside world, and then how they see themselves um, on the inside of the mask, the part they don't show the world. Super powerful. What sort of themes do you see coming out of um, that exercise? I think, you know, it, ha- it happened actually very recently when I met with a group of people from Ernst & Young. We did the mass ex- exercise. I talked about my own journey with illness and recovery, you know, in very graphic detail um, because I was, wanted to use it as a cautionary tale. And so after we got through those two activities, you know, people were in a place where they felt, um, I would say challenged, if you will, to inspire a challenge to to be revelatory about themselves and their feelings. And, you know, one, one person whom I'll never forget said to me, especially after I finished my, my own personal story, he said, you know, I think all the time that my father had worked too hard and he died young. And, you know, just looking at my own hours, he, you know, he made far less than I did. But, you know, he worked, you know, X amount of hours, X amount of days to make this amount of money. And it eventually killed him. And I'm just a few years younger than he is. So I'm afraid, I'm afraid of dying because I'm working so hard. I'm taking care of myself, my emotional needs. And so for me, that was very just indicative and thematic of, why these conversations are critical to really, you know, give people the okay to to be themselves, to, to take a mask down, but also to be open to the help they may need to recover from whatever it is. Wow. Um, in an article by Damaso Reyes in the M News, you were quoted saying, "My fatigue and frustration with journalism began to outweigh the fulfillment I'd gotten from it, but I still wanted to continue to work on these important social issues." And that kind of referenced your move to. Um, social change in the nonprofit sector. I'm wondering that that line, my fatigue and frustration began to outweigh the fulfillment I'd gotten from it. How is that parallel with some social change work that you do or that you see others go through? Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like that same line could be true of people who uh, are kind of martyrs in this social change movement. Well, it's, it's funny to say that, because that, <laughs> to be very honest with you, I'm sure some people will be upset with me to hear me say it or talk or, talk, or frame it this way, but I think the nonprofit space, maybe I, maybe because I'm newer to the space than a lot of people, six seven years maybe, I feel like um, I feel like people in the nonprofit space have a tendency to think we have to we have to be martyrs. You know, if we take care of ourselves, we focus any attention on ourselves, that we're being indulgent, that we're not being true to our missions. So I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna deny myself. Um, I'm, I'm gonna push myself to the brink, um, and I'm I'm not gonna um, devote any time to self care or or even organizational care, you know, but it, somehow by focusing on ourselves, we're, we're undermining or taking away the mission of what we're meant to do or to our organizations. And that's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Um, it's, first of all, it's actually selfish. Not to care of yourself in these organizations is selfish. And if, to me, not to take care of myself to get sick, seriously, you know, that would be selfish because, you know, that, that means I'm not being at my best, putting myself in my best place to serve the organization and the youth with whom we engage, you know? So, I don't know, it's, it's, I just feel like in the nonprofit space, it's, if you're taking care of yourself or somehow you're being fancy or, you, you know, you're you're indulging. It's just, it's you know, nonprofit space is one of the few spaces that acts that way. And a for-profit, you know, I don't know, it's just this martyr thing, much more prevalence um, in the nonprofit space. I was going to say when I wrote those lines from Amsterdam News, um, you know, it's almost like you love something too much, then you start to hate it. I mean, I love I love journalism too much. A journalist is who I am. That's that's who I am. That's not what I do. It's who I am, and that was the mistake. Well, it's interesting. I feel like um, 
there is a culture within the nonprofit sector, but also within a, a variety of sectors, including, you know, corporations, I think there is some sort of, uh, you know, social cachet or credibility that people mm. feel they get when they brag about how busy they are and how hard right, they're working exactly. to the bone and how much busier they are than other people. It's a, it's a weird culture that we live in, I think, right now. I agree with your perception, though. You know, you mentioned only being in the nonprofit space for seven years or so. Um, but there definitely is that martyrdom in, in some areas. And uh, I think in many ways, you mentioned this with your relationship to journalism, people define their identity Absolutely. with their role at their organization. And so if they're not doing that full tilt, then somehow they are lesser than. Uh, and it's not healthy. It's interesting. And, you know, my, my partner was saying this to me that, especially at a certain level, you know, executive director, and, you know, not that I feel sorry for myself or anyone else, but there's a um, there's almost this self pity that you know self pity, but it's real. There's a feeling of solitude because you can't. There's no one you can talk to at that level. Most of the higher you know you, you know you're supposed to achieve and and grow and 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 rise as high you can in organizations. And that's that's what you're told. And then when you get to the place where you're executive director, you know there's no one to talk to. At least among your your team or organization, you know you can't talk to anyone you mad and say I'm depressed, I'm stressed out, I'm feeling this way, you know. So, you know, I, I really, I wishfully, Trina, I'm hoping for the day when, you know, there's an executive director's collective or group that comes together. And um, I don't know, I, I just, it's something that I love to see, actually, where I can actually talk to other executive directors about our journeys. I feel like that, that exists in some places. Are you familiar with the Rockwood Leadership Institute? I've heard and, of it, yeah. Leadership? Yes. So I took part in a version of that um, facilitated by Robert Gass up near Vancouver. And okay. it was such a transformational experience for me because it was one of these rare situations where a group of progressive leaders could come together and be vulnerable and not have that mask of, you know, sales or fundraising or self-promotion. Um, and so people could talk about things like their marriages or their relationships right. with their parents, um, the difficult conversations that they were having with work and the, the, um, the uncertainty they had about their leadership abilities. And right. these are people who from the outside would be considered very, very uh, successful. And it was such a powerful experience. And I know that's one example. Uh, and I'm sure that there are others that uh, that exist, maybe at more local scales. But I, I agree with you, it's important to have those, those spaces where it's you're safe in being vulnerable, um, and talking about personal and professional challenges. I know that Rockwood offers a lot of training uh, around the country. Okay. And um, their their focus is really strong on developing leadership among uh, organizations that are serving and led by people of color. So I don't know. I'd recommend you check it I, out. You know what? Thank you for that. I'm actually going to look into that. Another question about something that you've written before. You published a very poignant letter to your daughter in response to her question. Daddy, why do you go? Why do you leave me when you worked as a journalist in yeah. conflict zones? Yeah. Uh, you're not going like you did then. What do you tell her about your work now? I mean, she she understands it. I mean, it's you know, I'll be honest with you, Trina, it's a regret I have, um, you know, because I won't ever get those years back, and neither will she. But um, now, I mean, she she does understand what I do. I mean, she's 14 now. I mean, it, she gets it. She does get it. Um, it's funny because you know, for so many years, I was I felt guilt about it and stressed about it, and. Um, 
you know, I, I was, you know, like I said in the letter, I just, I was, I prayed that I could actually build a relationship with her and that she would, you know, come to understand the work I was doing at that time and, and the work I'm doing now and, you know, kind of, you know, I guess, like a phrase, forgive me or um, just understand, you know, just understand. And, and I think now she understands and maybe it's inspired by the work I do and did the past to some degree, but she's trying to mark her own path. She's trying to figure out, okay, I like what he does. I get it. And, you know, we need to do that. But what can I do for me? Like, you know, that makes sense for me. So, you know, she's she's young, but she's trying to she's trying to figure it out. She's asking those tough questions. That I'm so proud of her for doing that. And what kind of self care lessons do you share with her? When you're not feeling well, listen to your body. I say listen to your body all the time. Um, you know, and I stress the importance the importance of spending time with family and friends. You know, that when the work day is over, the work day has to be over, you know. And for me, to be honest with you, getting sleep was, was, was transformative. It was huge. To actually take time for sleep, that, that was a big deal. Funny, I used to be proud of, uh, get, you know, being able to get by, get by, to be able to get by on um, five hours of sleep. Like, that was, that was a product, you know, that's all I need. No, it's not all you need. You need eight to ten hours of sleep a night. Like, you know, that, I'm not special. I need to, you know, as much sleep as the next person. And, you know, force myself to sleep or just listening to my body when it's time to sleep. That that was that was that was huge for me. That was huge. Uh, when it comes to self care, is there anything that you thought about coming into our conversation today that you haven't had a chance to share? Um, part of self care is finding the pathway. I'm not saying it has to be in therapy. I'm not saying you have to like fight or talk, but I think find the pathway that makes sense for you as an individual um, that allows a valve, a release from whatever stress or trauma or pain uh, that one may be feeling. And what are those things for you? I, you know, I see a therapist, which is something I never did until after um, I had the second heart attack, seeing a therapist. And I think that the second thing was, um, even though I'm not a journalist anymore per se, Trina, is journaling. is actually writing my journal and you know, it doesn't have to be a full thought, but it's the process of running down what I'm feeling and thinking that moment. It's amazing. I never, because my work before is always to take notes or write questions for any of you. It wasn't about, let me let me take notes or journal, clinical journal, to feel better, to let go of things. And now that I do that, it just, <laughs> it's opened up so much. Well, thank you um, so much for, for joining me today. You, I really Trina. appreciate your frankness and our conversation. Um, Jimmy, where can people find you online? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, and I'm open to talking to people. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that drew me about journalism was not just the writing, but I'm I'm curious about people, and I'm just you know, people fascinate me and the, the distinctions between us and people's stories. I, I just love hearing and you know, ca- capturing stories formally and informally. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much. I really you, appreciate, I really appreciate your, uh, your time this afternoon. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. The resources mentioned today can be found in the episode description and at trinaisaacson.com. To submit a question or idea, send me an email at trina at 27shift.com. That's 27shift.com. If you're not already a subscriber, use your favorite podcast app and search for Do Good Better Podcast or receive emails about new episodes by signing up at trinaisaacson.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.